I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. This post is the first of two that will be exploring the story of Plymouth School of Creative Arts, a remarkable new school in the southwest of England. It's a fascinating example of a school designed around the nurturing of imagination, right in the heart of one of the UK's most deprived cities. In this post, I speak to Andrew Brewerton, principal at Plymouth College of Art, one of the key people behind the creation of the school, where he also chairs the Board of Governors. In the next post, we'll hear from Dave Strudwick, the school's head teacher. As you'll see, Andrew Brewerton is a leading thinker in terms of how education can build or crush the imagination. And I started our conversation in his office at the College of Art by asking him to tell me how the school came about and what was the gap, the hole that it was trying to fill. We decided to create a school. It's, it's unusual for art colleges to create mainstream city centre four to 16 all through schools um, <clears throat> in areas of significant multiple deprivation. Uh, in fact, we're the only one. Um, we, the, the idea of, to create the school came out of um, t- two things really. The first, the first was a preoccupation with just what was happening, not only to creative arts subjects in the school curriculum, but also creative thinking in education, in, sc- in schools. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, 16-year-old extended diploma art design and media students coming to Plymouth College of Art would say to me, uh, when I asked them how's it going, they would say, uh, oh, it's great. And you say, you say, what's great? And they say, it's different. And you say, so what's different? And they would say, it's different to school. And then they would tell you that at school they just teach you how to pass exams. But here we can think for ourselves. <clears throat> so this was a major stimulus. You know, it was, it was 2011. The coalition government was talking about EBAC. The Brown report on higher tuition fees had been published in 2010. Potentially, you know, the potential threat of some of these developments to what we were doing as a small specialist at that point in in our history, uh, FE College, was it was potentially so threatening, it was a little bit exciting, and we had uh, because you felt that actually your the 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 supply. <coughs> tap of creativity that you then nurtured was sort of was dwindling the, the, there was a it was a really peculiar climate and it was my <coughs> first engagement with further education but there are 17 sixth forms in Plymouth and against a, a against a a, a, a rapidly de- declining demographic 16 to 18 demographic demographic there was uh, it was a climate of protectionism. Uh, we weren't allowed into schools. Uh, schools were ringing up our students and offering them computers and whatnot to re-enrol in their sixth forms. It, it, you know, there, there was a really serious um, ecological issue in, mm. in terms of the education landscape. Uh, 
So there was that. There was the issue of what what is the direction that creative learning might take uh, at variance with the teaching to the test culture. But there was also this idea that um, <clears throat> creative learning and art education is one of the most accessible routes into progression through from school to further and higher education. And so when we wrote the application to DfE, which I'm happy to share with you, by the way, especially okay. Section C, which is the vision statement, we said this school's got two strategic objectives and, and they're inseparable. And one is uh, what we called at the time pedagogical innovation. And the other is what we called at the time uh, community impact. And we, we, the Plymouth College of Art, um, um, our sort of, the governor signed off a strategic plan, over, a five-year plan over the summer, which says we've got two strategic aims, and one is creative learning, the other is social justice, and that's what you see all over the building. Yes. So, um, <clears throat> so we said, this is a transgenerational project. It's a project that will join up early years, primary, secondary, FE, HE, and the employment agenda, uh, we will demonstrate in years to come that creative learning transforms the life chances of young people, especially in very uh, deprived neighbourhoods. And in essence, that's the project. So it was. It started out as a as a question around practicalities, really, but also a perception, a sort of deep philosophical difference in terms of the approach to learning. So we created a school in the art college ethos of learning through making in all subjects. Mm. And yeah, food was one of the key kind of manifesto points in even in the application to the department. The, yeah. the kitchen and the, the food right in the heart. Yeah, and we, uh, the argument in the application was this is the quintessential agenda for 21st century skills. You know, it, it's everything. It's language, it's culture, it's history, it's chemistry, biology, maths and physics, it's project management, it's creativity. It's all of that, all of those things. <coughs> um, so, <coughs> that, so, so in a nutshell, we, this was, I think it was a conversation around risk actually, in which my job was to challenge the management team that I just got was just getting to know in my first year and um, you know when people talk about risk they talk in, almost invariably about downside risk they don't talk about opportunity so our question was what's, what is the opportunity mm -hmm. in this very thorny context um yeah, that's a, so. I guess it's. I guess it's not that the school, the college, didn't have links and relationships with schools, but they were quite transactional. Yeah. Um, and we had we had basically folded our marketing department, which wasn't really a marketing department at all. It was a sales department. And my question was, what do we think we're selling? What is it that's transactional mm -hmm. about what we do? So we, we stopped doing that and we put the college onto a campaign footing. So from then on, we've been campaigning for 
enduring values in creative learning. You know, to, you know the thing mm. that art schools have always been about, and so. Um, but it is effectively um, has become a kind of propositional uh, position, and the key thing is ma- making is as important as reading and writing. And did you have other when you started to dream about this, when you started to imagine this school that you could create? Mm. Did you have other um, did you have other examples in mind or case studies or places you'd seen <coughs> seen something like that or were you really starting from scratch and creating something that Br- brilliant exists? things exciting things happening in in one part or another yeah. of the whole continuum the amazing Reggio project in mm. Reggio Emilia yeah. and, and uh, you know uh, Loris Malaguzzi's legacy um but nothing that was putting the whole thing together. Actually, I remember now a conversation. Um, Anna Cutler is now a member of our board here, but Anna Cutler's director of learning research at Tate, and I had this conversation with her in London back in 2011. And she said something interesting. She said, she said yeah, I, I get it. She said, this is, but this isn't about creating a new kind of school, is it? This is about creating a new kind of student. <laughs> and that's exactly, mm. in a way, what it's about. And the new kind of student is that individual who, from their earliest years, has <clears throat> been driven by their intrinsic interests and curiosity and creativity mm. so that they never sign that contract in which the child learns that their job is to double guess what the teacher wants them to say mm-hmm. so they're never not learning for themselves they never fall into the trap of learning for some yeah. uh, for somebody else or for some ulterior <coughs> motivation motivation mm-hmm. um My colleague Wang Daowei, around the same time when I was, uh, sorry, in, in Shanghai, I got a long-standing relationship with Shanghai mm. University and the, the, the Academy of Fine Arts there, 20 odd years, and so he was sort of saying, okay, so what are you doing in Plymouth? And I spelt out this project, and he said... Uh, we think that's an artist-led project, which somehow you're doing inside the system, <laughs> and that was that was quite. Occasionally, mm. people respond to what we do in, in a way that gives you a kind of insight, mm. uh, and you recognise the, the truth uh, that you How might not have articulated quite mm. like that, but it's there. How would you assess the state of health of our? collective imagination in our education system in 2018 how is it serving the imagination of of young people do you think the imagination uh, imaginations of young people uh, survive develop uh, despite the system and um, And what I think's 
you know, my, my first response to what you said earlier before mm. you switched the machine on this divergence of IQ and imagination um, you, because it, it, stri- it strikes me that um, there's something even more pernicious than uh, if you like the, the marginalisation of art subjects in schools um, you know the, the, the massive reduction in footfall in terms of GCSE enrolment and mm. A level and so on and so forth that is the consequence of EBAC and Progress 8. It's the target culture. That's to say... The need to measure everything. The need to measure. and the, So metrics-driven target culture upon which league table positions depend, upon which uh, institutional reputation and uh, leadership careers depend. Uh, I think... Um, <clears throat> I think it's the, I think it's the target culture that is destroying creative learning, mm. uh, because it's so pernicious, because it affects and hollows out the motivation of learners, because it only ever serves those who are in, who who are in whose positions are. S- already advantaged to the point at which they understand what the game is mm. and how to profit from it um, I did this slightly mischievous uh, TEDx talk in Bath Abbey in September um, um, in, and I t- uh, in which I talked about the, the, the hostile takeover of the education system by the assessment industry and you know it actually is not such an exaggeration, no. um, and the the the, the but, and you know the old cliche of they count what can be measured rather than measuring what counts. Mm-hmm. So I think I think what happens, the dilemma is that is that the the, the metrics based assessment systems, presumably by which IQ is calibrated or uh, whatever. Um, <clears throat> disable other kinds of value systems. So the lack of an the lack of an alternative value system by which you might make um, you, you might ascribe uh, achievement or progress um, is an extraordinary uh, omission. Mm. The I don't know, I'm trying to find an analogy. But one thing that really pisses me off is is what people say about William Morris, you know, that he was, okay, these wonderfully designed artisan chairs, but the craftsmen couldn't afford the thing mm-hmm. that they were making. And, uh, but that's only true um, if your value system is predicated on your ability to consume. But if you switch the value system round and, and the value system is predicated on your ability to make things, then it's these poor rich people who have no alternative but to buy the thing that they don't know how to make in the first place. So, so I, 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 kind, I, suppose, I suppose what I'm saying is that it's the, the, the framing of the question in terms of 
the assessment criteria, mm-hmm. which are metrics, that uh, <clears throat> the long-term impact of that, I think, might account for this odd divergence yeah. between IQ and imagination. And if we if we have a um, if we have these the, the cut in spending, the cut in teaching hours, the EBAC, that sort of moving of art subjects out of having mm. any kind of importance or role really what are we doing to to the young people who are who are who are coming through an education system where they get almost none of that at all what is it how does it how does it how does it impact people how does it affect the people that they become do you think i i think they the risk is they become less creative scientists and less creative engineers and less creative business people or, you know or people with less sophisticated value systems and the the culture is sucked into 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 uh, consumerism basically so um and it's so so i'm what i'm saying is it's a much bigger problem than a problem for art education mm. obviously that's um, not valued by um, this government you know they don't value it no. actually they don't really value learning they're only really interested in control measures institutional structure um, and the metrics there's no thought as to the consequence, intended or otherwise, because, well, one of the reasons is because the schools that they send their kids to don't have to deal with all this shit, you know, and art education is live and kicking in public schools, Mm. Uh, you know, independent schools. So, um... But at the same time, as you know, the same DFE trogs out to Shanghai to work out how Shanghai schools keep topping the PISA league tables. And my friends in Shanghai just they just laugh about that. They say, How the hell do you think we do it? But it's no substitute for childhood, you know, it's like the kids do nothing, nothing else. But now the Shanghai Education Bureau is interested in coming to see. What Plymouth College of Art is doing at the Red House, um, and we've been invited to create a school in Shanghai. So, and Pisa is now looking at how they can develop a measure for cr- creative learning. And Ofsted is saying we're no longer ma- going to make these very very data-based. Judgments. We want mm. to see a broader, That's more just balanced. Last year, isn't it? It is. It's yeah. Amanda Spielman, who's. It's just that Nick Gibb, the school standards minister, is completely addicted to the metrics. Um, so, I think <clears throat> there's a reaction. There's a kind of gentle, gently growing acknowledgement that the, the, the metrics based assessment systems are, are ineffective mm. um, there is not yet the acknowledgement that they do massive damage 
um, to the learner and to the and to schools as institutions mm -hmm. and and to, and the other the other way in which obviously schools are being undermined is because they're not sufficiently well funded or there are massive discrepancies in the funding allocations that the same kinds of schools get in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you wanted to design a system to undermine creative learning, you, you'd be hard-pressed to, to do something better than we've kind of done mm -hmm. you know, for us. Okay. <clears throat> by default <laughs> yeah absolutely and um, yeah I feel like I could talk about that for hours and hours because it's, yeah, it's sort of it's heartbreaking reading the reading all the stuff about the degree of the cuts and the number of jobs lost and all that it's, it just feels like it's such a well, such well, a betrayal somehow. but but you know the the <clears throat> um, at the same time, the government has just has just published new data that show that the contribution of the creative industries to the UK economy has just gone through the um, the the one billion mark, GVA. Mm. Twenty percent of the economy, or something. Isn't it, it? Uh, it, before it was one in eleven jobs. Presumably, it's more than that now, and bigger than aerospace, automotive, oil and gas, and the life sciences industries combined. <laughs> and where do the hell do they think? You know, the the the, the Chinese are desperate to work out how. Are, creative education has driven the creative economy in this country which is regarded as world leading mm. so that they can replicate it so my friend Wong Dawei said two years ago we've been watching what you've been doing we're going to move the Academy of Fine Art to this new Branfield site to form a bow steelworks in the north of Shanghai it's part of a very big urban development project, the creation of an art city. The first phase is move the Shanghai Academy of Fine Art into the former rolling mill of the Bao Steelworks. This building is 856 metres in length. And that's phase one. <laughs> and by 2040 they will have invested 40, 40 billion US dollars in what they see as a creative industries hub for Shanghai in the 22nd century. So other economies are thinking, you know, the, 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 I, I guess the point, the other point about the metrics and the target culture is it's incredibly short term, termist in its thinking. It is very. They are very, very short-term horizons. They're almost annual horizons, and um, I don't know. I just think. It, I just think we we've got it very, very wrong. Um, <clears throat> so what happens is people find nooks and crannies and space 
non-institutional, post-institutional spaces mm. in which to be creative. Uh, and that was always the case. You know, a lot of the pop music industry came out of art schools bedrooms. and bedrooms. Yeah. Games industry certainly does. Um, and I also think I also think there's a big question around what we call the space of learning. That's to say, that's to say, as soon as you close that room with the sink in it, how do you teach art? And when you switch the kilns off, or when you close the performance spaces and that's one of our propositions that the space of learning uh, either offers or withdraws mm. the possibility of learning so I think that what's happening as well is the learning environment is shifting in a way that is less and less conducive to creative cre creativity, creative practice or, and um, sticky, messy, space-hungry practice uh, is seen as a luxury, seen as something mm. we can't afford. You should just not speak people on their laptops. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've done the opposite thing here. So we've <clears throat> we've invested in analog. You know, if we 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 in twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen we opened two phases of our new um, craft design and fabrication workshops. We built a painting, drawing and printmaking studio, a big one, mm -hmm. yeah. with North Light. And from 2010 when I arrived, where we had this one lovely 1862 Columbia relief press, we've now got about 15 printing presses that we've sourced. So, star wheel electric presses, we even got a, an 1840 blocking table, you know, a Victorian wallpaper press, hand block, large plate. <clears throat> Not because we've spotted a niche in the wallpaper, wallpaper industry, <laughs> but because there's, there's a kind of aesthetic uh, sensibility and intelligence that you only really acquire in direct contact with materials and processes and mm. by thinking through materials and processes. And you can by all means export what you make in those materials into digital, but it doesn't work in the other direction. No, no, no. And nor does the experience occur. There's a film that it would. There's a film called Thinking Making, okay. uh, directed by Henry Ward, and commissioned by the Freelance Foundation in London. It's about a th it's thirty minute film on on the college, okay. which I will give you the link to. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and it. Uh, I mean the last. The word Plymouth occurs once, and it's actually the last word that's spoken in the film, and it's 
my voice saying we're not saying that we've got everything right we just know why we're doing what we're doing here in Plymouth and then it's only in the credits that you find out that this is Plymouth Comedy Park okay. and the whole journey has been around thinking through making and, and, and whatnot. So when you sat down with this amazing possibility we're going to design a school from scratch we've got a mm. site we're going to create a school that goes from 3 to 16 We've got, a, we've, we've got an architect, we've got a site, we've got a dream. What was that process of creating the school that I went and looked around today? We didn't have a site. Okay. So we, we had an idea. And what we said was, <clears throat> because in the application you have to, in the DFE application, <coughs> you had to indicate your preferred location, is what they called it. And we said... We want dairies, which is a, was an empty department store. Right in the centre. Right in the centre. And it was, it was very interesting. Uh, um, it was very interesting because when we went for the interview in Westminster, we were we were expecting to have a real hard time on the vision for the school uh, you know so we uh, went in prepared to have an argument if necessary and the first thing that the chair of the panel said to me was the vision for this school is very powerful we have no questions about your vision <laughs> and then the second question they asked is but we need to know whether your preferred location is a deal breaker And I said, let me put it this way, this school needs big open floor plates, no corridors, no room that resembles a cell designed for 30 inmates. We want very specialist performance and studio spaces. We want it to be totally accessible to an inner city neighbourhood, a walk-in off the street. And the problem is that this is the only building that fulfills that, those criteria. And in the end, uh, so they, and they said okay. And when the Education Funding Agency uh, project managers were appointed, that was where they began. But it was very, they very clearly didn't want us to have this building because they could see what a nightmare it would be and so we had this long-running conversation in which I was saying yes I yes I know there's hundred reasons why we shouldn't have it but the problem is there's one reason why we should and in the end they said there's this other site um, but it's too big for your purposes so the developer will build apartments on it it's got to be joking you know dairies and then they came back and they said you can have a whole site developer won't build apartments on it and I said yeah no dairies dairies <laughs> so we but, it, but in the end and in the end it was look look, is, is it a deal breaker and I said no of course it isn't so, but if we can't have the department store build us a department store that we can occupy as a school mm. and that was the most extraordinary brief 
for the architects and it was it really you know it, it sort of it it turbocharged our thinking about what that space of learning was and which for us is still a research project really you know the whole question of the space of learning um, <clears throat> So, we, so in a way, it really was a making project, and still is, in that it wasn't a case, okay, here's the plan, it's definitive, now we'll go and do it. It hasn't been that kind of experience at all, and, and I personally hope it never will be definitive, because of the way in which it can still develop. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, but the thinking was really uh, there were two there were two kinds of thinking, really. They had to do with the core concept of the studio, as opposed to the classroom. That was formative, uh, and the workshop. So specialist spaces, you know, a dance studio. Uh, science lab or whatever and then on the other hand they had to do with the relationship between inside and outside and that for me was very powerful always as a sort of uh, as a kind of dialectic really um, and and the architects really really run with that so we've got these huge windows that mean um, that there's always a relationship between inside and outside and and, uh, and these are not just physical perspectives but they are imaginal perspectives mm -hmm. um, actually there was a thing at the South Bank we did at the South we've got this installation at the South Bank the school and the college. The school made a map of the Tamar and took it, and, and it's installed in the undercroft of the South Bank. And they rocked up and they took questions and they told people what they were doing. And and the college had this installation as well, which is part of our manifesto project. And then there was a public, um, there was a panel discussion. Um, actually, I. It's just come to mind because I talked about the relationship between inside and outside okay. in that context. So, and and the whole thing was a, our architect had staged the thing as well. So, but um, so it was it was it was very much a kind of it wasn't a blueprint. It was a it was a, it was a devised project basically. But working with architects who really enjoyed that journey and were very, very sophisticated thinkers around space. And so, what, so now that it's built and you can <coughs> walk around this thing, how how does it? And you've and you've had people working in it for a few mm. years. How, how is it performing? Do you think? I think I think I mean you, you, there are there are, there are, one of the issues has been that um, every year since the school opened with a hundred hundred and twenty or hundred kids the school has it's been a different school every year because it mm -hmm. went from 
that number to 300, then to 540, uh, and then to 760 or something. You know, it's it's kind of the scope and the scale of it has shifted every time. And this year is the first year it's at its maximum. Quite, yeah. So now we know what the building can take, and we're still, you know, we're still work. There, there's one. There's there's an issue. I, I mean, there's an issue around the ventilation um, <clears throat> that we we're experiencing. Um, but the behaviours inside those big open studio spaces are the things that have really had to shift. And Dave, will, I'm sure, would have mentioned this, that that degree of transparency in terms of teaching practice can be quite threatening for mm. teachers who are mm. used to shutting the door and then being... Um, in control because you're kind of on show all the time quite yeah yeah but and that doesn't suit everybody and then there's the question of noise and how the learning community regulates noise levels that was my main sort of one of the observations I did there was that when everybody was mm. the acoustics were, could be quite kind of overwhelming I think at certain mm. times of the day yeah and, and, and but they regulate it but the other thing that really, that really, <coughs> is really striking for me, and was from from the outset, was that if you've got real engagement on the part of learners, there's this other inside-outside space, which is you know the zone. If you're really focused on something, mm. you go into the zone, and the rest of the world and time disappears. And that's what I see quite a lot. And um, so that's coming out of the pedagogy of, of mm. you know intrinsic motivation and whatnot. But but I I just think we there's so much more to learn about the space of learning. Mm. Uh, actually, that's the, that's the, that's the test. I mean, it's, it's a, just a, it's a 10 minute talk, it's provocation, but you can have that. Thank you so much, thank you. Yeah. One of the questions I've asked everybody that I've interviewed about 70 people, like I said now, is, is that, is if, is if you, in the last election, had been elected as the Prime Minister, Mm. and you had run on a platform of make Britain imaginative again. So mm. you had felt that we've got all these huge challenges which are arising out of mm. a dwindling collective imagination, a dwindling sense of change being possible, a dwindling sense of what the possibilities are that are open to us. So mm. we need to we need <coughs> to be seeing a revaluing, a re-nurturing, a rekindling of imagination, whether in politics, in policy making, or in education, in public life, in architecture, in landscape design planning everything you know we need to see this run like in the same way we might say we need to have a you know an economic mm. revolution you know we need to have an imaginative revolution and that was the platform on which you came to power mm. what might you do in your first year in office do you think where might you start on day one i would abolish Ofsted outstanding the Ofsted outstanding grade 
you wouldn't abolish Ofsted in its entirety. That might be day two. Not a bit of false sense of security. No, no. I, I, it's a bit. It's a bit like a kind of perf- your performance appraisals processes. What you really want to know is, does this performance meet expectation? Yes or no. But you end up with a system that's extraordinarily Byzantine and labyrinthine and baroque and alphanumerical and that ends up being a kind of complete waste of time that nobody, everybody agonises about, gets upset about and then forgets about and then goes through it again the next year or, you know, I'm, again I'm caricaturing. But I, 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 think it's, I think schools need external scrutiny. I actually, I believe in external scrutiny. I think it's really healthy. Mm-hmm. And the more transparent that is, and the more supportive it is, the better. But that what we've got is, is systems, the part of the, the target culture encourages gaming and skews behaviour and sets up quite appalling behavioural example or models for young people if they learn that that's how you 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 succeed by gaming the system mm, mm. that's not good I, I, I think I think the curriculum I think the curriculum needs a very significant overhaul um, and one or two things I would say about that I mean apart from the the over assessment massive over assessment that happens throughout the education system is that um, if sometimes the very notion of subject upon which the whole system is predicated is an obstacle to learning you know timetables validation events curriculum contracts of employment everything's built on this notion of subject but actually, um, is that what we're edu- we should be education edu- educating people for? Mm. And again, one of our propositions is the purpose of learning is inseparable from that of living your life. And when those two paths diverge, it's the most disadvantaged, the most vulnerable people in our society are the first to get lost. Mm-hmm. But I also think that the pedagogical ethos you know, around creative thinking, not as a subject silo, but as, as something that you do, it, whatever, and inqui- creating inquiry-led, practice-based learning, um, rethinking the terms of ref- the curriculum terms of reference. Um, you know, th- these are exercises that I think we should be investing. So you said that you would. You said that you would get rid of outstanding. What's what is particularly obnoxious about outstanding? Do you think? <coughs> if you, um, because it, it encourages head teachers to game the system in order to get outstanding. It encourages choices around. It encourages triage around 
borderline pass-fail, uh, I'm not sure that it serves the, the interest of learners. Mm -hmm. And it does, whereas if you, if you just said, okay, there are only two outcomes for external scrutiny, that this, the school meets expectation or it doesn't, then you, you take away that anxiety. You, there isn't a lead table. Mm. You know, it's just like there's everybody, and then there's the people who haven't, who need to improve. Who was it that talked about the English genius for t for, for taking diversity, and you basically you rotate it through ninety degrees, and it becomes a nice hierarchy, <laughs> and that's that's effectively, mm. you know, so. Uh, I I think I think reducing reviewing the assessment regime and the purpose of assessment reviewing the curriculum and the pedagogical approach putting making back into learning because making is as important as reading and writing um, thinking really carefully about the kinds of life skills that people need for resilience in the sort of world mm. that we're moving into you know another there's another view that that 80% of those jobs in the creative industries are resilient to automation and you can't say that about a great deal of other professions that mm. are mm. white collar professions in your experience of being around the arts and creative education for for a number of years. Well, if you were to set out some of the ingredients for creating a space in which people can be as imaginative as possible, as creative as possible, mm. what what would those ingredients be? I think the studio is is a is a is a really really interesting paradigm um, because it's a social space. Because if, if you like the social dimension of learning or the social nature of all learning is very apparent in the studio mm. because it's not severed ranks of people all accepting instruction from the front or... Or a lofty garret. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a working, it's a workspace. And people thinking through making and um, yeah, so so you know what, what what I'm not suggesting is we throw the whole thing out of the window and start again. But I do think we should be asking why we do things in certain ways, and I think we should be questioning the effectiveness of the current assessment culture mm. and asking just who exactly is it serving um, whose purposes who's gaining from this and it turns out actually that it's the target culture mm. um, so I think the space of learning how, how you create how you construct learning environments I think how learning networks develop is really interesting. You know, p part part of the learning experience could easily be 
that you spend some time in another part of the world, you know, in some way, shape or form. And that when when Ofsted came to the first post-opening inspection in the second year of operation of the school, they were with us for two days and we said, look, and we only had at that point reception year one, two, three and seven. No year six, no year eight. And we said, um, if you want to see the year seven, you have to do it today because tonight they take, they walk to the ferry port, which is about 150 yards away. They take the night boat to Roscoff. Tomorrow, a hundred of them, they're free range. And they've got a task uh, to fulfill, which is they have to buy all of these French ingredients because when they come back, they have to cook a French meal for the whole school. And by the way, this is the... By the way, they learn culinary art in French, because they want to learn how to cook, they've got to learn French to get there. And that's a motive. And by the way, this will be the first time that most of those kids have been outside of Plymouth. So the other... One of the thematics that we... I talk about a lot but we work with is the horizon and that's again is the inside-outside dialectic but it's about but you know if there are children in your school who were born 800 meters from the sea and have never been to the sea Mm. you realize that the question as to where your horizon is is the most important question in their lives in a way and Dave told me that as the boat trip got closer in time. There was a group of boys who started to show signs of anxiety and he said, are you worried about a boat trip? And they said, yeah. And he said, um, what you worry about? Is it going to France? No, it's not a problem. Is it, is it speaking French? No, no, that's not a problem. Well, what, you just don't like the idea of being on the sea. No, that's not a problem. What's the problem? It's the boat, they said. And they basically said, well, what's, what's the problem with that? And they basically said, we don't think we can row that far. <laughs> Night. He said, no, 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 it's not that kind of boat. This bearing in mind you can see the ferry from the school. He said, it's like a hotel. Well, they didn't know what a hotel was. No experience of a hotel. Mm. And so he did a, that the next day, morning assembly, they did a project about the ferry. And he said there was this audible relief as all of the kids just realised they were going to be on this thing and they weren't going to have to row to... But I mean, so I'm just telling that as an anecdote, mm. but it's about where your horizon is, really. Mm. So I I just think that... Um, well, I've, I've drifted a long way off your question, I know, but part of it is about how connected your your own learning space is to the world out there, mm-hmm. but to the big questions, and the environment is most certainly one of those things, mm-hmm. and so is the whole business of human migration, and um, and so on and so forth, really.
That's all my questions I had. Is it? Just yeah. whether you had any last thoughts <coughs> on imagination or that you've been thinking, oh, I hope you asked me that and I've got this thing to share, but I haven't asked you the right question yet. Um, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei wrote in a little book he published about the same time that we were thinking about the school that creativity is part of human nature it can only be untaught and I think we do a good job of that I, I think I think what he's saying is that that education systems grind creativity out mm. of learners mm. through prescription and proscription in terms of I guess effectively the assessment mm-hmm. process uh, there's, there's a little film by Michael Moore uh, on Finnish schools schools in Finland uh, which is, is a Michael Moore film but he's, he's um, uh, he asks there's one point where he asks um, <coughs> he asks this group of um, teenagers um, who'd been on exchange to the States done a school swap he said what, what was what was the thing that you found most uh, interesting about that or difficult and, and I'm paraphrasing here but they said well multiple choice questions and he said yeah but how do you know what the answer is if it's not one of the four you know and, and they and they basically said well, you just you have to know the answer is and he's he's the film is really a, a critique of American schools but uh, the target culture drives behavioral consequence and prioritization through the assessment process of uh, the qualifications industry that conditions the expectations mm-hmm. of learners as to what they're, what they're there for, what they're supposed to do. There's massive consequences, various points in the system where, where kids drop out or they end up being excluded. And for those that survive that process and progress, the parameters of their learning are quite restricted Mm. and the way that they're restricted is all of the ways that can't be measured if you like because they don't count Uh, and because they can't be counted again that's this is a caricature but I'm trying I'm uh, but I do think that that we are we have we're kind of harboring some version of that nobody believes in it Nobody, mm-hmm. everybody resents it. It's driving the best, a lot of the best people, uh, to their wits' end and out of the profession. And it's been going on since the since the nineties, since before the nineties, mm. but certainly since then. Mm-hmm.